Having the integrated team, having the ability to look into different areas of the capital structure, trade and markets associated with that area of the capital structure gives us uh, an ability to access liquidity differently. You're about to hear my conversation with Steve Locke. Steve is a calming influence in what are very unpredictable and chaotic markets. We discuss the current market turmoil, his approach to investing, how he built his team, and what the Locke family is doing to wait out the coronavirus. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast, a podcast designed to give you insights on how our investors manage client money. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Steve Locke. Steve is the head of our fixed income team who manages just north of $40 billion in assets. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Matt. Thanks. I look forward to a wide-ranging conversation. Let's get started with how you became interested in investment management. Great. Yeah, a long time ago now, it seems. but. Uh... <laughs> We've uh, been, in, been in this business for over 25 years, so you know it's uh, it's a while a while ago. But I, I did sort of get interested in investments in kind of mid high school, really. You know, around uh, you know sort of 16 years old, something like that. And yeah, my first sort of blush was sort of interest in business. And I remember reading the old Financial Post, um, you know, the uh, the National Post and Financial Post, two two uh, sort of business periodicals that existed, and I would be on the bus kind of reading business interest stories, but not really honing in on investments at that point. Uh, but then as I got into late high school, I took a course in economics and markets and sort of under, trying to get an understanding sure. of the theory behind markets. And that really was what drove my early interest. Um, I'd say the, the, uh, along the same timeline, I, I, I saw a couple of movies that, it, that made me interested in markets. And those two in per- particular were, Wall Street, which was a you know very famous an uh, Oscar-winning movie at the time, um, yeah. on on the comedy side it was Trading Places with uh, Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, which had a markets element to it around commodity trading. So I'd say those were the sort of the right. very earliest influences on me as I started to move into uh, into my uh, my markets focused uh, university days. You're still trying to corner the orange juice trade. <laughs> frozen concentrated orange juice yeah unfortunately that doesn't work in our fixed income fund very well but uh, but uh, that well. was certainly the uh, the focus of that uh, trading in uh, in that movie um i guess in terms of other things Fair that enough. i read along the way as i was an undergrad i read a number of markets focused books like uh, predator's ball uh which focused on the junk bond market mm-hmm. as well as um, um a book called traders uh i read uh, and as well um uh, Liar's Poker, of course, which is a very famous uh, bond market sure. focused book. Yeah. Great. Uh, and then uh, once you graduated school, uh, where, where did you first uh, find work? Yeah. So I did uh, two degrees. Um, I did my economics degree and then an MBA and focused on investment finance. And and uh, that uh, those two, uh, you know, increasingly focused degrees around markets led me to want to to land a job in the markets. And uh, unfortunately, I came out during the middle of the early 90s recession. Uh, so looking for a job was a little bit yeah. difficult at that time. But uh, I was fortunate to land on my feet with a bond trader uh, and credit analyst role with uh, 
MetLife in Toronto. Excellent. And um, how long were you at MetLife? And um, that obviously started a career that's progressed to where you are now. Maybe just walk me through the various roles that you've you've had in your career uh, and what's brought you um, to McKenzie. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I guess I was fortunate with that MetLife role. Um, it uh, started me off on the on the right foot and in particular around the, the trading aspects of what I do today. And uh, you know, the, uh, the very first, uh, day on the job, they, I mean, I was aiming for a bond trading role there, but they said, we're going to, you know, give you some experience in a place where you can't hurt us or hurt yourself. So kind of like, you know, the giving a, a kid there, a pair of like plastic scissors with dull ends on it, you can't really hurt yourself too much. Sure. Uh, so they, they put me in the money market side and I, I spent the first six months there managing a money market portfolio, about $300 million in size. And, it was, uh, you know, it was, I, I thought I'd, you know, obviously died and gone to heaven uh, in context of, you know, being a, a fresh out of school and, and being able to, to run the, 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 the money market program there for, with an active trading strategy attached to it and having to be responsible for the, the P&L that I was generating on that and the total return I was generating on that portfolio. It's actually a, a series of portfolios, but um, it was, uh, it was great uh, sinking my teeth right into the trading and um sure. getting a feel for the markets immediately like literally on day one and two of my my career so great start um felt you know very uh, uh compelled by what i was doing and then tr that translated into the bond side very quickly as i took over the bond trading at met and i did that you know i was at met for four years and uh it might have okay. been longer had it not been for the fact there was a wave of consolidation that went through the uh the life codes at the time demutualization of life codes right. and then a consolidation among the canadian industry at the time so met sold its canadian business to uh, another life co and uh at that point in time i managed through the transition period but i uh essentially it was a it was a wind up of the canadian desks that they had so that moved me into the second phase of my career but Along the way at Met, the two things I gained were uh, bond trading experience, which was great because we were trading uh, all kinds of duration there, uh, long bond trading. Uh, we were trading corporate credit, including both public market corporates as well as private placements, which were you know very hard to trade. So uh, non-rated sure. debt as well as you know a non-investment grade related debt as well as uh, uh, public market corporate debt. Uh, in in all kinds of markets, including during the you know kind of the the phase right leading to the uh, the long term capital management uh, issues right in in 1998, which is during that transition wow. phase for me as I moved away from Met. So Met severed us all, or most of us, uh, because they were winding up their Canadian business, and I went to um, a, a different life called Royal and Sun Alliance, which is a P and C company, property and casualty insurance, as well okay. as a life go, as well as had an asset management area on mutual fund and seg funds. So with that, I gained some additional experience around uh, the fund management side. And I went in there as an associate PM for the second phase of my, my career. So doing a lot of the same things I was doing at Med, trading a lot um, and trading in rates and trading in credit, but then also in the portfolio management realm, starting to work with portfolio uh, management additionally through that second four or five years of my, uh, my career. So kind of getting me a decade in that's what I was doing um, at uh, at Royal and Son. That that became uh, uh, my first sort of portfolio management phase in my career. I would say, in that sense, that I took over the day to day management of a few a few mandates that we had there, 
working with my my colleagues and we were a small team working with my bob my boss rob pardon me at the time uh rob uh, was a very experienced portfolio manager and really guided me through you know that second phase of my career learning active portfolio management um so that was a you know a great learning experience and ultimately pushed me fully into the portfolio management realm as i as i continued my career from there right um, and, uh, I know my, uh, first interaction with you was at a firm called Saxon actually, where we both, uh, were employed, uh, is that the next job sort of in line, um, as you continue to go down the portfolio manager track? Yes, exactly. Um, so at, at Royal and Sun, which was a great, uh, opportunity, uh, the opportunity started to kind of level off in the context of that 2001, 2002 recession. So what happened, of course, uh, sure. you know, not to, not to Royal and Sun in particular, but uh, around the world, of course, was. The equity market meltdown in, in the early 2000s and the recession that accompanied that challenged a few balance sheets in, in places. And so it was, uh, you know, uh, at that time, um, we were doing quite well with our portfolio management at Royal & Sun in Canada. Um, but, uh, you know, in context of the, the global operation, they decided, I think, in, in sort of a kind of a rolling fashion to outsource investment management um, to save costs or, and, and so on and to uh, manage more centrally um, the controls um, around the, the insurance operation. So there's nothing, nothing in particular that, that led to that in Canada other than it was our turn at some point. Seeing the writing on the wall, I started to look at um, in my career at you know, the next opportunity that might be available to me because this may hit Canada at some point, I figured. But I was also thinking about, you know, expanding my my portfolio management career, and I took the job at, at what ultimately became Saxon. To your point, uh, we it was actually at a, a company called Lancet Asset Management that was hiring me. But right. that integration with Lancet and a, another company called Housen Tattersall Investment Council was already underway. So uh, through a little bit of a delay, they ended up hiring me as a portfolio manager for fixed income, working on a small team at at, at Lancet effectively which after I landed there about mm -hmm. four weeks later became Hausen Tattersall. That became Saxon Financial, uh, which was uh, after the IPO in 2005 of, uh, of that, uh, what was formerly a private business uh, into the public market in Canada. So Saxon, Hausen Tattersall, the same business, went forward from there until uh, 2008. Right. At which point, uh, McKenzie acquired uh, Saxon and uh, integrated operations on January 1st, 2009. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, sort of your days at McKenzie, particularly the early days uh, in 2009 uh, and going into 2010-11. Still a fairly small team uh, with the core constituents that followed you from uh, Saxon or House and Tattersall. Uh, where you sit now, your team is over 20 individuals. Uh, you've really had the ability to build out that team substantially. I'd love to start uh, maybe in 2011 or 2010, where you're bringing your ideas to the CIO or, or uh, to McKenzie to, to suggest that you want to build out that team. What was the motivation behind uh, the larger team and the desire to, to build it out? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, things were changing, you know, in, in the industry, obviously, rapidly through that period of time, global financial crisis driving that. So we had we you know, we're hitting the other side of that. So just to sort of recap, I landed at McKenzie uh, through the acquisition of, of Saxon 
uh, on Jan 2nd, 2009 is when I actually, you know, we moved into the office. Right. And uh, so it was a very obviously tumultuous period in the markets and yeah, also sure. for the capitalization of uh, the banking system and the intermediation of credit and, and, and other markets. Uh, lots of evolution through that period of time. So what we kind of came to understand, what I understood, you know, looking at that period as we came through it into 2009, 2010, that there was a need for changes in how I would look at portfolio management for fixed income. Um, the thesis that I was working with and many were starting to embrace, not everyone at that time in 2010, but many, some people were embracing anyway, was this idea that we're going to have a very low yield environment for a long period of time to come. Uh, and right. uh, so that was thought, you know, uh, some like at PIMCO were calling a new normal. Uh, 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 sure. That, you know, that was a, um, a phrase that caught, uh, you know, greater and greater favor in the markets over the next few years. But in 2010, it was still somewhat controversial in the sense that you had a contingent of people who thought that with the injection of liquidity the Fed had done, the zero rate environment would likely inf uh, change and inflect back to a higher yield environment. Inflation was coming. Uh, there's be a day of reckoning for the bond market coming in the context of this right. a big bear market move, such as all of the, the 1970s, you know, something dramatic like that. Um, that was not at all how mm -hmm. I felt about it. Uh, and still to this day, don't feel that that's in the cards. Um, but uh, for the foreseeable future in 2010 and beyond, my message to McKenzie was, and to the, the teams that we need to now build a fixed income operation that can contend with a lower yield environment, but maybe with those bear markets and bull markets along the way. However, in, with an idea that we need to be more integrated and with a wider scope of potential investment opportunities in fixed income. And so it was, abandoning, if you will, the silos that used to exist in fixed income management, such as investment grade managers right. stick to triple B and above, uh, high yield managers just stick to the high yield market. Um, geog geographic integration was sort of, you know, you know, fairly modest in, in, in many respects. It was about integrating all of it to be able to try to attract better yield opportunities into the portfolio when they, where they existed, whenever they existed, across the capital structure, across the geographic uh, profile of markets. And so that's how I started. And I sort of, you know, started to integrate that, propose it sort of um, as a theme, but not, not as a, a wholesome idea, but really targeting where we could add additional resourcing and start to flesh that out. And that really started in that sort of 2011, the 2010, 2011 period, as I integrated the, the existing team right. at McKenzie, started to build it. Yeah. Excellent. And then you actually started uh, making new hires uh, as early as 2012 with Melvin Mockbell uh, joining McKenzie with a focus on loans. Um, uh, one thing that I've noticed about some of the talent that you've attracted is there seems to be a characteristic of global experience. Melvin worked in uh, New York, uh, Constantine, who looks after our global bonds uh, in Germany and New York, Dustin Reed, uh, New York, Caroline uh, in Hong Kong. Um, they tend to be Canadians that worked abroad. It, is that just happenstance or, or is that something that you were looking for when you're building the team? Um, it's a combination of things. I, I would say you're right about that. Most of them have had, uh, you know, our Canadian expats that, that came back. Um, Constantine being an exception, he, this coming to McKenzie was his right. first uh, instance of living in Canada. 
Um, but, you know, so the, the theme was looking for the right individuals to build the team, to build out our capability and doing it sort of sequentially in a way that, that made sense around the existing mm -hmm. core competencies of the team. So we knew what those were. I mean, uh, as we started the process, we had uh, some good talent uh, in corporate credit analysis and and we built our portfolios. And I had been doing that since my, you know, Howes and Tattersall Saxon days, building portfolios around overweights to corporate credit of different types. And my own background having supporting that in the context of what I'd done earlier in my career. So active management around credit, around corporate credit, around, uh, you know, use of the capital structure, that's what enhanced that. Now, you know, no, not exactly knowing who I would find, I started the search and, uh, you know, I, I would say, you know, sometimes in your career, you're a little bit lucky as well. And, and Moven yeah, sure. you know, happened to be that first hire that you mentioned on the portfolio management side. Now, I'd already built up some a little bit on credit and trading around some yep. areas of, of this integration. But Moven's skill set was definitely in non-investment grade credit. And it was in that period of time I was looking for an expansion of that to go alongside Dan Cooper, who'd been a long time at McKenzie and was, uh, you know, a fixed income PM on the high yield bond side. So Mulvin's experience in various types of credit was very attractive and he just happened to land on my desk kind of right at the right period of time. So it was, I'm in that hiring mode and I'm looking for this. And he happened to be working in New York on Wall Street for a dozen years or so at that point. And as was the case across the world for most capital markets groups, uh, many Wall Street uh, related desks were kind of closing down parts of what they were doing and his work in the private placement area sure. in New York, which is, you know, unrated debt, highly structured deals, building on his career, which had covered a range of different types of credit uh, experience there. Um, that desk was closing down. He was head of that desk for, for the bank he was working for at the time. So he was looking to move back to Canada. His, fam his family was here in Toronto. He'd grown up in Toronto. Um, having moved from his native mm -hmm. Lebanon uh, when he was younger uh, with his family. He had extensive family network here and he was looking to move back, recently married uh, and uh, looking to start a family. So, I mean, it was it was just a natural fit. Um, so lucky as much as anything else in that he was that that first one. But, sure. you know, as you mentioned, we, we expanded beyond that. Constantine, we hired him out of New York. He had worked uh, in New York for about a handful of five years or so, a handful of years. And or that a handful of years out of his native Germany, out of Frankfurt, on global bond portfolios. So he was an opportunistic hire. Uh, I was looking to expand the global reach of what we were doing. And his skill set, right. less credit, more focused on rates and currency, uh, fit that nice complementary piece that we were looking for at the time. And he was also, you know, with 10 years, 10, 12 years experience as he was coming to us, he fit a an operating model in terms of his skill set, which was again expanding and complementary to what we were doing, being a little more quantitative and data focused in how he looked at portfolio management. So, uh, you know, met with him in New York a few times and and found his skills just to be fit the bill for that growth phase for us on the global side. I guess in mentioning Great. a couple of the others um, you brought the, you brought out. A couple sure. of the other names that you mentioned. I mean, Caroline, Dustin, hires uh, that we've brought to the team. And again, yes, Canadians um, who worked uh, for most of their career outside of Toronto 
um, again, yeah. I think that's you know it's it's a, it's a it's an interesting angle on on building a team. Um, Canada represented less opportunities for those who are looking at capital markets from a global perspective in the past. So if you think about the '90s and 2000s, it, uh, there was a, right. some even some rules around investing that were Canadian centric, which which were taken away back in 2004, 2005. Um, and the, the the globalization, if you will, of markets, Canada and Toronto experienced a globalization as well. But prior to that, many people had to go outside of Toronto, outside of Canada to get that global experience. So them coming back I was a, a sort of a natural fit and a nice timing for us in the growth of the team. Great. Um, you talked a little bit about uh, the uh, when you were talking about building out the team and the philosophy that you had about the interconnectedness of bringing the what were disparate asset classes and bringing them together and having those conversations. Um, I know that uh, one thing that you strive to do on your team is to make sure that uh, you're very interconnected uh, across uh, those different sub asset groups within fixed income. Explain to me a little bit about why that's important to your process and uh, why you think it's an advantage when you look at the marketplace. Yeah, right. Well, there's many advantages that come with it, um, but certainly we get back to the first principle here, and that is that what is our job? Our job as an active manager is to produce the best risk adjusted return we can for clients. Uh, we have different types of portfolios that we manage. And each one of them will have a focus to the, the management effort, the geographic uh, area or the, the cap structure area that we're investing in. But as an active manager, we want to look for additional trade-offs that we can make in our portfolios to enhance the return profile while keeping the risk consistent. Uh, if you're sticking to a silo in the markets, so an area uh, geographically, um, there's always an adjacent area that uh, you can look to to create additional yield or potentially additional sources of liquidity around your investment discipline that aren't um, okay. part of that original silo, but yet are very relevant in terms of that risk return generation. So that was the the working thesis. Now, I've, I mean, I've worked in a great area of this that you can think to over time is the credit markets, the corporate credit markets. Sometimes there's an artificial sure. barrier that exists there, and it's it becomes structural in how uh, how it uh, how it how it operates in the markets, or how the markets operate around it. You might say an example. Of this is the rating structure. I mean, we think about the triple A, double A, single A, triple B investment grade market, and then there's this border that we call non investment grade. So for many years in my career, I could see this, uh, you know, this this relative value across the border. Yet I had mandates early in my career that could not go into the non-investment grade market. So there's great inefficiency at the border that an active manager could take advantage of. Now this is obvious to me and to many of us throughout right. career, but yet when those structural rigidities exist that we can't that prevent us from taking advantage of that, well, those are things that I would often go to my institutional clients over in my first few years of my portfolio management career and look to them and say, can we use this or use an adjacent geographic area with a similar risk profile to be able to pick up additional uh, basis points of return? That we've expanded that, uh, you know, additionally through time with the team 
to be able to make more active trade-offs, but it's not sufficient just to add the resourcing. You have to have a team culture and approach that allows mm -hmm. for that trade-off to take place. So adding analysts or at, in certain areas, for example, they have to integrate with other existing parts of your analytical platform appropriately so that right. the active trade-offs will actually come forward and be usable by portfolio managers. Um, you have to have a trading desk that can be nimble enough to uh, move, uh, help move the portfolio from a certain area to another area um, and understand the, uh, the dynamics of that trading well enough uh, to guide the portfolio managers and the analysts to that decision and then get the best execution around it. So the integration is, is extremely important. Um, and the culture of the team embracing that integration is equally important. Uh, so that's something that we had to build over a few years. And um, we'll turn to current market environment in just a second, but um, we're doing this podcast remotely. Everybody's working from home, given uh, the, what everything's going on. How difficult has that been for your team, given the fact that one of your advantages is that integration, that culture of, uh, of looking for trade-offs in different segments? And, and how has your team responded? It's difficult, I'm sure, for everybody. Uh, this is a very, you know, very uncertain time with a lot of adaptation required across all societies to deal with the the big risks, uh, uh, medical risks, and uh, societal risks, economic risks, of course, now as well. Um, so to be sure, um, it requires a nimble thinking. So I guess backing that up yeah. to the previous comment. Uh, my team is conditioned for nimble thinking, um, and and that be quickly applied to the operational side of what we do. Um, we've all, of course, you know, had uh, many past episodes drilling into business continuity planning around how we operate. And our team sure. with uh, over 20 people on it has experienced in a variety of different ways through the years, uh, ability to test around certain events, uh, um, even, you know, individuals on the team with their own personal event you know, having to test that remote connectivity to the team. Uh, but the integrated nature and the culture of the team is, I think, the, the, the biggest plank we can stand on right now, the most stable uh, position for us in operating remotely, because we've set up so many parts of our process around integration, uh, the ability just then to connect from home instead of being face-to-face -face in the office has been I would say, you know, not seamless, but but as close as you might hope to to seamless uh, through this the last number of weeks where we've all begun working from home. So it's a it's an important part of what we have established in our in our team's footprint, and means that we can then conduct ourselves, you know, in a fairly routine fashion around the portfolio management effort and trading effort that we go to every day. Great. Uh, so maybe we'll turn to the current market condition now. Um, there has been a lot that has gone on in the last month. Uh, I was uh, preparing for this and I decided to Google what the headlines were a month ago, and they seem so quaint now. It was uh, it was the lead into South Carolina primary was the the big headline. Um, a couple of weeks later, obviously COVID nineteen or coronavirus dominates the headlines, and the market reaction has been uh, swift and extremely volatile. Maybe I'll start 
by just getting your description of the current state of fixed income markets, um, are they operating as you'd expect them to? Uh, and and what's your view on the markets as a whole uh, as we stand? And I'll, I'll, I'll time stamp it because everything's changing so quickly. It's uh, March 25th at around 1030. So um, if I can get your, yeah. your uh, current take, that'd be great. <laughs> so you should probably add the seconds to that timestamp as well, just because uh, they are changing no kidding. that fast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, definitely, uh, you know, we've seen just in the past, you know, couple of weeks, massive changes in policy. But, you know, I'll give you kind of a, a just a quick backdrop to our thinking and how we approach these sort of things. So, um, you know, if we look at the last decade I and mean, we're talking about the team's development around the last sort of 10 years or so. Um, you know, what we've contended with in markets has been a fairly continuous use of, of a variety of policy tools by, by central banks and sometimes by uh, um, uh, government authority in context and connection with bailing out markets. So, again, the financial crisis brought a lot of this to bear. Uh, and, and there was a, a playbook that had not been developed significantly before the crisis in 2008, 2009, that now has been enacted for a number in a number of different ways over time uh, for 10 years. So what we've seen in the past few weeks has been a quick rollout of that. I have been thinking about this and we can, we can connect this back to the team and how the team is structured and why it's structured a certain way, not just from risk return uh, generation, but from actual portfolio management considerations like evaluation of liquidity access to, to a variety of markets during times of crisis, uh, or even in between those crisis moments. The last 10 years has uh, produced a set of conditions in debt capital markets that is vastly different than it was in the 2000s. So the team's adaptation sure. is partly driven uh, and, and uh, was necessitated by those changes. Uh, so thinking about it another way is that if I need intermediation from, a, from an investment dealer on a certain area of credit, um, I'm not able to get that and have not, not just now in this crisis moment, but even a few years ago when we had no crisis in the markets, I'm not able to get that to the same degree necessarily as I was in, uh, in the prior uh, cycle. We have to use a variety of different markets to maybe get the same level of liquidity so having the integrated team, having the ability to look into different areas of the capital structure, trade in markets associated with that area of the capital structure gives us uh, an ability to access liquidity differently and differ in a more differentiated fashion where we can pick and choose mm -hmm. where the best liquidity is at any point in time. So that's been very helpful even now in this crisis-like environment <laughs> around the coronavirus. So some of our preparation, if you will, goes back many years, not anticipating a pandemic, but actually anticipating a need in moments like this, where, where credit markets decline, it's a very risk off environment. Do we have access to enough sure. liquidity around our active managed stance? So that's our, uh, you know, that's, that's been very helpful. Coming into this year, we had a distinctly uh, defensive posture relative to the last few years. Um, coronavirus for us came up on the radar in January, uh, as it, may, it might have for, for other investors too. Really? Yeah. Um, but 
it was not a for us immediately a demand story. It was a supply chain story, um, interruption of the supply chains, meaning there would be some economic dislocation and a maybe a slowing global growth profile, which was the theme that we were working with through the end of last year, even before we'd ever heard of coronavirus. So we were positioning more defensively for those reasons. And that was helpful as the coronavirus became a bigger and bigger issue in Q1 uh, 2020. Yes, um, for sure. Uh, you're, uh, I guess I'd like to focus maybe going to uh, February, uh, late February, uh, where the volatility really uh, picked up. Uh, you were defensively, conservatively positioned at the beginning of the year. How active have you been since uh, February and what kind of changes have you been making? Well, so I'll... I'll maybe answer you with starting a little bit earlier because some of the adaptations we made were actually back in January. Uh, so in particular around individual okay. credits. So companies that we were, we were engaged with or, or sectors that we were engaged with um, early on with the story breaking out of our coronavirus in China sent, you know, really specifically to China uh, immediately we were, you know, struck by the potential for supply chain disruption as well as certain businesses maybe being hit on the demand side, including energy. So we came into the 2020 with a close to neutral energy weighting in our high yield basket. And energy is the biggest sector in, for the high yield market. Uh, uh, it has been right. for a long time. Uh, so we actually cut our energy weighting in half. And, and we started to look for businesses additional, additionally in other sectors where we felt there would be a, an impact coming from coronavirus. Again, we're not really looking at it as a global demand story yet. We're looking at it as a demand story in certain industries uh, for certain reasons. So we ended up cutting uh, down our exposure to individual businesses and companies where we thought this would impact. So think of this as, um, you know, local to even some areas of Asia, you know, was, is there someone who relies on a revenue stream? a company that relies on a revenue stream from that area of the world that is significant enough that uh, we would want to sell their bonds. And we did that. We did that across um, dozens of positions through the end of January and into February. So they're taking us up to the point where now we're starting to more actively debate this as a more globalized issue. We see, of course, that Iran right. and, and Italy are unfortunately... You know, starting to have their their uh, their moments of acceleration of the virus, and uh, so with that, we began to think about this more as a global demand story. Again, our thesis, though, coming into 2020, was that global demand was already slowing, partly due to the trade uh, war issues from 2019, uh, the hangover of that, sure. but also partly just because the the credit cycle was getting a little long in the tooth. I mean, we've been saying this for a few years, and each time we said it, there's been some reconditioning around the cycle to allow it to extend. So we were in that mode of thinking anyway. And so the risk reduction then came in in a few more forms as we went through February. We started to add and tighten hedges around downside risk of credit. So use of derivative strategies that would, if we were to see a more accelerated downside, would be uh, uh, engaging to protect and mitigate that risk. So we applied that not only in uh, some portfolios, which as a theme, always use downside risk protection, 
But in other portfolios where we can add it tactically, we did that. We enhanced that mm -hmm. sort of insurance, if you will, by, by tightening it, by uh, sort of, if you will, in insurance terms, reducing our deductible should the markets actually correct. Sure. Uh, the good news at the time was that the markets were not sufficiently discounting this as a tail risk event. I mean, volatility, as you'll recall, at the beginning of the year in equities and in high yield, if you look at implied vol on options of the high yield market, was actually at a record low as you came through January. So the cost of this insurance was actually quite light uh, for the degree of insurance we could implement. So we were motivated to, to make those, those changes. But then we did other things too, Matt. We, we, we added duration across all of our portfolios, thinking that the, the, the potential for a greater demand decline, again, not what we're seeing today, which is far worse than sure. what we were at that point projecting, but a greater decline in demand globally was there. The conditions were there for it. So that would cause central banks to have to cut rates um, uh, you know, uh, several times. So that was not priced into the yield curve. We bought duration. We added uh, you know, U.S. treasuries. We added Government of Canada uh, bonds. Uh, and we added those across all portfolios. We also used some currency positioning to enhance our downside risk protection at the time as well. And we do that by way of you know, sometimes holding U.S. dollars uh, unhedged. We don't do a lot of that through uh, all the years. We don't make that big those big positions, we don't want the volatility from currency. But in moments of crisis, there's often that flight to quality, which includes US dollars. And that has a, been a big component of the risk off here through the, the, the second, third weeks of March with a demand for US dollars globally leading to some of the policy changes that uh, the Fed has introduced. Um, there's a shortage, of, there's been a shortage of US dollars and that's some of the policies trying to correct that. So that push meant the U.S. dollar rallied versus all currencies, including Canada, uh, which, of course, had the double whammy of the oil story uh, during this period of time as well. Right. Maybe we can shift to talk about the policy response and what we've seen so far, what we're expecting. You mentioned earlier that the uh, Fed had created a playbook uh, in the financial crisis. Um, they have certainly uh, implemented that playbook. Um, they're, you know, QE infinity. Um, it's almost like Buzz Lightyear is in charge of the, the Fed infinity and beyond. Um, right. Is that is uh, I guess I have a two part question. First of all, um, the response from the Fed, is that something that you deem was necessary and is, is correct in this case? And second of all, is it um, this a general fighting the last war, if you will, or is it an appropriate policy response for where we are? I guess there'll be some that always question the appropriateness of central bank interference in markets to the, the levels that we've seen now, you know, as we look back at the global financial crisis and, and the years since, um, you know, sometimes people will look at it from a, um, a secular point of view and say, you know, with the Fed having done so much to support credit, what we've created is some kind of credit monster that ultimately has to be reckoned with. Sure. And, you know, I'd say that you know, there's certain, certainly um, truth to that. Um, nevertheless, in moments of crisis like this or like the global financial crisis, or, you know, we, we can talk to long, a long time ago, things like the Great Depression, um, there 
is a need for government or for policymakers, central banks as well, to do something to support their constituents. And the Fed has a specific mandate, which is uh, full employment and uh, price stability. And in the context of what we're seeing right now in the economy, you have neither. Uh, so they do need to react and re react in a, in a big way, given that this this you know this crisis that we're facing with coronavirus represents a sudden stop to a vast mm -hmm. uh, array of businesses and consumption activity by households across the world. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not just a U.S. story. So. In that way, it differentiates yeah. from most recessions where you have a more gradual slowdown. The financial crisis represented a hard stop potentially to financial services or financial uh, capital market intermediation. That element right. hasn't been significantly on display here, partly because the Fed reacted so quickly with large scale policy. Um, now, the Fed reacted last fall with policymaking that uh you can look at and say was required otherwise we would have had a stock market correction or uh, in my opinion or a credit market correction through the third and fourth quarter last year the repo market issues in september which uh, many will recall right. where the repo rate uh kind of um dislodged from its its usual proximity to the fed funds rate the repo rate went up to 10% and 8% and had a number of days like that and it had to do with you right. know, what was happening in capital markets that drove that. And the Fed reacted by changing its policy stance to start buying uh, T-bills and to start to, to expand its balance sheet. And it introduced temporary, what, what it was deemed to be temporary measures around supporting repo. Um, so that is an example of the Fed rolling out the policy. Now we've seen that again, expanded here with a massive support of the repo market um, because the repo market is of course basically the lifeblood of financial intermediation right the how banks um right. collateralize each other uh across uh the overnight and short periods of time over many weeks so the fed has gone that far and to a large uh to a much larger degree than we've ever seen before and but it doesn't stop there. There's been many other policies rolled out uh, by the Fed over the last three weeks uh, to to compensate for the lack of ability to get liquidity um, to get it um, mm -hmm. when needed for the financial system, and that's only partially addressing the issues that are at play today. Um, the real economy, if you will, so not uh, intermediated uh, markets, but say, the ability for a company to uh, provide its good or service and, and turn its accounts receivable into cash in the real economy, that's been interrupted yeah. significantly as well. The Fed can't address that necessarily directly. Uh, so there's, there's still a lot of dissonance between that, uh, th those markets, those local markets for goods and services, or those global markets for goods and services and what the Fed can actually do to, uh, to enact policy to support that.
So that sort of uh, goes nicely into fiscal uh, policy response to try to offset some of the uh, demand uh, decline that you were referring to, which is just profound. I mean, if you look at the numbers out of China, uh, the first one hit by the virus and you look at what some people are projecting uh, in the U.S. economy, I'm hearing, you know, four trillion dollars off GDP, uh, maybe more. It's a uh, certainly a, a huge number. Um before turning explicitly to fiscal, is there anything left on the monetary side or is has the policy response now shifted to fiscal in order for them to, to do something? There's definitely more potential on the monetary policy side as well. Uh, so we think about the way that pricing dislocates in an event risk like this, a tail risk event, an exogenous shock to markets. Um, there's definitely more that monetary policy can do. And we're actually seeing it even you know, day in and day out changing and, and uh, additional mm -hmm. policy coming to the fore. And so, for example, the Bank of Canada yesterday uh, uh, launched a, uh, after a continual, continual set of announcements over the last week, launched a program to support the provincial T-bill market. You know, not, not something that's sort of center stage globally, but yet very important to the functioning of the short-term funding space, the money market portfolios, or the collateral right. that's exchanged around uh, interbank uh, lending. So there's definitely you know, more things that are going to continue to roll forward from monetary authorities. But you know, the big question the market's really grappled with here is what can governments do, to your fiscal question, to support yeah. the growth of the overall economy? And that is a big, big policy, and it's a political question alongside being a policy question that is hard to solve. Um, you want to do something, and it's it comes down to supporting businesses, what, most affected? Or is it all businesses? Is it uh, import, right. uh, supporting them through, uh, um, you know, Putting hands in, in uh, money in the hands of consumers uh, is it is is that enough to prevent business failure and supply chain failure coming from this issue of the coronavirus? Um, is it is it should it be more directed at medical uh, intervention? In other words, supporting the health system so that you can get consumers right. and businesses back to uh, to spending um, in, in a very short period of time. Um, these are you know big policy trade-offs, and uh, ultimately there's constituents on both sides of that debate. Uh, I think in all, in all cases, um, the effort that's being gone to is is, is significant. It's it's much larger uh, in dollar terms. Uh, we saw a two trillion dollar package in the U.S. passed just overnight. Uh, that's much larger than what um, the fiscal pact had been uh, established during the the great financial crisis in, in 2009 mm -hmm. under the Obama administration. So there's been, there's been effort put forward here to be sure. How effective will it be? Well, let's take it back to very practical terms. Um, if a company is, has been reliant significantly on turning its accounts receivable to generate cash flow, to pay people and to continue its operations. And it's a small business that does not have access to one of the large scale commercial paper programs being launched by the Fed, uh, then mm -hmm. it's, its business is, is very close to the brink. 
how do we, how sure. does the, the federal government interact with that business? The Small Business Administration in the U.S. is is certainly getting engaged in some of that the aspect of rollout. But you are talking about businesses who have contracts that link to other businesses that have contracts, maybe with debt holders or or private lenders to that business, yeah. where there is a thirty day window to avoid default on some of those uh, debt obligations. So if you don't get something going fairly quickly, you have an event of default uh, coming into the bond market. And ultimately some of that event of default will enter the banking system as well, because companies will, and, and individuals for looking for cash will tap their lines of credit, their, their short-term borrowing. Uh, so we've seen this of course happening across you know, large headlines with uh, large companies drawing down their lines of credit. That's pushing the issue into the banking system, and that has to be reserved against mm -hmm. potentially by banks. So um, the issue is very local and can very quickly turn into a uh, banking system credit issue. And so this is where you know trying to stimulate demand locally is 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 important through some of the fiscal policy. It will be tough to do that in every instance. I think you know what we should look for here is that some businesses are going to fail. Um, small and mid-sized businesses will be unable to get uh, lending to them restarted. Um, they will be unable to reestablish um, the same demand for their good or, or service in, in a short enough period of time to avoid that default. Um, their landlord for their, their operations will ultimately stop receiving lease payments. Probably that's already started. And that will have an impact mm -hmm. on the commercial property values, which will have an impact on CMVS and other areas of the market. So there's this dislocation. The, and again, we think about it in the context of dissonance in terms of the, how policy can interact with that. Um, that's significant. And that's where a lot of the uncertainty that will continue to be priced into credit will come from. So based on those comments, it seems like you're somewhat skeptical that uh, fiscal is going to be um, the silver bullet that some people maybe hope it will be. Um, how do you take that view uh, and think about your portfolios now? What, what are you doing in your portfolios to express your view of uncertainty? Um, and, and how do you implement those, um, those decisions with so much volatility and there's so much news and so much unpredictability? Yeah. It's, it's not easy to find the bottom, right? Uh, so, you know, I think in these moments, sure. you know, we always think about, okay, um, there's going to be a bottom put in. Uh, and so I should just try to grab what I can at the bottom. Well, in fact, the process works a bit more nuanced than that. The bottoming process is, is got many layers to it. So you think of it as more like a bumpy landing bottoming process that takes weeks or months usually to pass. Um, the, mm -hmm. the policy rollout will continue. It will create winners and it will leave some, uh, areas of debt behind as it does that. Uh, so it's a matter of, you know, an, initially here with the significant discounts that we've seen and, you know, and keep in mind what we have seen here is been, has been severe for credit, uh, it rivals everything we saw in the repricing environment of October, November, 2008. So thinking about this in the context of 
of the declines in pricing that we've seen, there is there's a, there's a lot to work with already if you want to think about buying in this environment. So coming into this, again, we had positioned for the downside uh, and we enhanced that positioning with downside risk mitigation in, in earlier in Q1. Our, our, we have not lost uh, traction with that at this point. So here in late March, okay. we continue to hold a lot of that downside protection and defensive posture in our, in our credit positioning. But we are gradually starting to let some of that go and, and individually looking for certain opportunities to pick up. Um, so when we look at a company and we see a, what we think is a fortress-like balance sheet with no real refinancing risk for that business, maybe uh, the aspects of that business operationally are largely going to be running, you know, not without hiccups, but but running fairly consistently through this, this economic downturn with all the associated uncertainties around a pandemic uh, driving it. This, this is the type of business that we would start to pick up even now. So it's, it's about selectivity at this point. It will become a more broad-based, um, you know, grabbing stuff that's been discounted, like with both arms, just scooping up. Uh, available bonds, but we're going to be going through a default cycle coming up. So yeah. it's still important to understand which businesses to to reach for. Uh, so our, I think notwithstanding all the policy response, like we talked about, there's going to be a more significant default cycle. So our approach here is still selective, uh, but with an idea that you know, with the discounting we've seen, severe as it's been, is is meanings it means that the the bottoming process is what is is underway. Uh, with a you know yet to find both feet on the bottom here, but it's underway. Um, I'll just give you a stat to back that up. You know, in terms of the severity of the decline, we think about 2008. Um, October 10th, 2008 was a really bad day for credit. In fact, that was the, one of the worst individual spread widening days uh, we've ever seen. And um, we've now had uh, five of the six worst spread widening days in high yield credit all in the last two weeks. Uh, and one of them tied that day in terms of uh, spread widening for high yield bonds. So th that, you know, we've rivaled that day. Uh, time and again, and you know, five of the six worst days now mm -hmm. are actually within the last two weeks. Just incredible. There's a often used phrase that says that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. When you look back at sort of market history, uh, is this anything like where, where do you find that the conditions are most similar? Um, and, and what do you try to learn from that? Or is it really unique and you're just taking a fulsome approach and taking a look at sort of everything? Well, every sort of decline is uh, is got its unique points to it. I mean, I think that um, sure. what what's common here with the financial crisis, which is probably the closest proximal, uh, certainly with any any of our investment lifetimes, the the closest proximal market to you know conditions to what we're seeing now. Um, that uh, that you know represents um, a turning off of uh, available credit between financial institutions is what drove the, the big declines there. Um, and so it was very much centered within financial institutions and banking 
driving the crisis. So that's actually different though from today. Today, it's right. the real economy driving the crisis. All the while, we have much greater capitalization in banks than we had in 2007. And we have much stricter mm -hmm. conditions around bank, uh, bank exposure to a variety of things, including capital markets themselves, that have been enacted all over the last 10 years and tightened uh, fairly continuously. So banks have still have exposure to the real economy. Um, so that's kind of traditional to a normal recession. And ultimately, that came home to roost in the mortgage market in 2008. Um, but that was a year and a half long lead up with U.S. home prices starting their decline in December of 2006. So there was a build up right. there of pressure that ultimately got released in the, in the great financial crisis. Here we have a sudden stop that hasn't been driven by right. mortgage markets. I mean, consider that uh, mortgage applications were on a, a very good pace in Q1 and home prices were rising <laughs> over the last few years. So now we throw the real economy, the brakes on fully almost. And this is now going, is it going to back its way up into the mortgage market and ultimately onto bank, uh, into, into the banking system itself? Again, that's just one microcosm of, of this. Um, so again, the conditions in the market look kind of similar in some ways and that it's hard, it, it's hard to trade stuff on a certain price point because that price is moving significantly day in and day out. There is liquidity in the market, um, to be sure. And we've, we've seen actually in the high yield market, probably volumes trading, which are, you know, generally on average 20% above a normal day, but the price discovery that goes with that is, is significant. Uh, and, and often, often been for many weeks now, adverse price discovery if you're trying to sell. Well, uh, thanks for those comments, Steve. We always end the podcast with a series of recommendations. Given uh, where we are and everybody's uh, stuck at home uh, doing their social distancing, that I'd take a, a bit of a different theme on recommendations and, and get some ideas on how you're passing the time. So maybe I'll start with some of your favorite books. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, well, I, it's certainly a good time to read uh Books of you know of any kind. I mean, if you if you uh, you know if you can get them, uh, if you have some on the shelf, or of course most people are maybe getting their their ebooks uh, now with using their 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 technology. Sure. Um, you know, I think um, I often find myself you know reading a variety of different types of, of books. I do like books, historical uh, pieces, um, uh, uh, talking about moments in history, um, not necessarily to do with capital markets. Uh, so, but most recently, actually, the book I've been reading is about kind of the history of, of watchmaking. So, uh, if I have a lot of time oh, really? on my hands here, I'm actually reading a book that, that goes with that. So, um, you know, the influence of, um, innovation and in, in, uh, timekeeping, uh, in a variety of ways going back many years has had a significant influence on, in fact, on ability to take risk, actually. So, you know, the, the, huh. the, the ability, for example, for um, navigators uh, on the open ocean to know where they were is significantly linked to accuracy of timekeeping. So, you know, the ability to understand your latitude has always been there, but longitude was a very difficult thing for sailors 
um, and they could be way off course uh, without it, um, leading to disaster. So that that impacted sure. risk taking through insuring, you know, early merchant trading, uh, for example. So I, I I found some books on on that that I like. I'm I'm reading right now a book on uh, history of a variety of different um, watchmakers, um, but <clears throat> I you know um, those are sort of the things that I've 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 done. Uh, of course, I have um, I have family here at home, um, and we're spending a lot of time together. So one of the other things I did recently was, uh, um, well, last year happened to be the 50th anniversary of the moon landing uh, by NASA and Neil Armstrong's sure. uh, stepping off uh, off the, the lunar lander on July 20th, 1969. So uh, you know, I've always had an interest in that. So there's been some neat uh, documentaries. One uh, produced by uh, I believe it was CNN that really just t- all you're listening to as you watch this, the launch of uh, Apollo 11 and then the uh, the the move to the moon and the landing on the moon. All you're listening to is the actual dialogue of mission control with the astronauts. And so that's a if, if you kind of like to immerse yourself in that. So I, I, I put that on the other day um, as I sat with my 16 year old son. And forced him to help me build a Lego model of the lunar lander. So, so he, uh, <laughs> he sat through that uh, with me. I think he grunt. He was grinning and bearing it a little bit. But uh, you know, we we for many years, of course, when he was younger, we did a lot of Lego sets together. So that was kind of a neat uh, little sure. diversion. Oh, that's fun. Uh, maybe a few more. Uh, how about you, some of your favorite board games? If you're there with your family, uh, instead of um, subjecting them to Lego models, uh, maybe break out a board game. What's your favorite one? Well, uh, you know, puzzles and board games, things like that are, are great distractions as well and, and great family time. Um, you know, we play uh, some some online uh, games as well. So on, on the video system, oh, yeah. um, we have the video game systems. Some of them we have come with these sort of multiplayer board game type formats. And one and it was called Wii Party. So it's on the old Nintendo Wii that we have. And we so we break that out from time to time. Okay. But other board games that we play like uh, over the over the table, um, there's been a, a variety of them. Um, there's uh, one called um, uh, Code Names. There's um, uh, another one that we played uh, recently. It was actually early this year, but I don't think we're going to play it now. It's a very challenging cooperative board game, and it's actually called Pandemic. Uh, I don't think we don't Ooh. feel so good about playing that right now. So uh, we certainly, if we play it, we don't want to lose to the virus. Uh, so maybe we'll leave that one for another day once this episode passes. That seems fair. Uh, final question for you. What's your favorite home cooked meal? Do you have a, a go-to recipe or, or something that uh, you particularly enjoy? Uh, it's, uh, it's a, no, it's a variety of things. I mean, I wouldn't say there's one that, that, uh, we, we go for consistently as a family, but, uh, you know, um, at home here doing a little experimentation here and there and getting my, my kids, um, involved in some of the, the preparation. I know my, my daughter, uh, who's 18 was breaking out a, uh, a cookbook that she has that, has a kind of variety of different sort of elevated like mac and cheese type uh, recipes in it. So we probably have oh, yeah. one of those in our near future. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, just spending whatever time we can on, on, you know, little experimentations yesterday, yesterday I decided at lunch to make 
some sort of uh, sort of think of it as like breakfast sandwich type things using a variety of ingredients in the fridge. I mean, we're trying not to go to the stores as often, so uh, you know, we're using up what we have and. Um, so those, those, those worked out pretty well, I'd say. So it's a, it's a multi-person effort here and, and there's no real go-to it's, it's experimentation. Excellent. Steve, thanks for being so generous with your time. I know it's an extremely busy time for you. Uh, so I really appreciate it. Well, thanks Matt. It's a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, best of luck to everyone out there and stay safe and, and healthy. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 